We're a, bit, we're a little bit smaller tonight because uh, there are quite a few people away either on holiday uh, or have got work functions. Yeah, there's a couple of people on holiday and um, there are a few people away on various work dues that have sent me apologies. But anyway, we, we're going we're gonna to crack on and this is week three uh, of the Minor Soul course. The first thing I want to do is, is, just, um, is just to encourage you and congratulate you. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting going on a journey like this, and actually, it's, it's very typical if you do any sort of work in the area of counselling or therapy to kind of get a couple of weeks in and then people start bailing out. Now, I'm not suggesting that the people who've contacted me to say they can't be here tonight have, have not got very good reasons to not be here. But equally, you know, from a sort of psychological point of view, it's quite easy for people to sort of also begin to sabotage their journey uh, as they travel on because it becomes a bit more scary. Okay, and, and, and quite, quite a lot of folk will have, at one point or another, sabotaged um, counselling. You might have done this yourself, um, where actually it started going quite well, and then after about week three, you started really disliking the therapist uh, and thinking, actually, I really hate this person, and then, and then working out some reason why you should leave, uh, and then making it all their fault. This was the worst and most annoying person you've ever met in your entire life and therefore you cannot possibly carry on with this relationship, and so you've left. Now that's quite normative, and in fact I'd say probably about one in four counselling relationships terminate on that basis. 99% of the time it's got nothing to do with the therapist, it's got everything to do with the clients. And the reason for that is that it's a safety behaviour. And I'm just going to recap a little bit on safety behaviours. So we, we find a reason to get away from the things that we're most afraid of, and that's why I want to congratulate you, because this isn't a very comfortable journey for many of you, but it is an important journey. And as you continue, as you persist, then you'll begin to break through these different kind of tanks, if you like, of experience. So just by being here, I want to sort of say well done for persisting, well done for carrying on. And actually, there, there, you might find this week you will do get, start getting quite annoyed with me and think I'm not going to come back next week. We've only got one more week left, so I'd encourage you to persevere and then um, we will we'll come through to the finish. So this week we're going to be talking about um, the present and, and we talked in the week one, we gave you a kind of, quite a kind of theoretical framework of understanding the emotions uh, and understanding kind of character development. Last week we began to talk a bit about the past and how the past had become uh, restrictive. Just pop back through a couple of the pages, uh, just, I don't want to bore you with a recap, but just to remind you, um, we talked about the power of guilt and shame and the cycles of guilt and shame. Uh, and then we got to this place where we started talking about what it is to be kind of locked into a box and how actually our freedom is in, inhibited by uh, our perceptions of our experiences, uh, the things that have happened to, uh, to us through events, through the acts of others and through the acts of ourselves and how our self-esteem can be influenced by that. And then we, we started looking back at the past through the next size I call Responsibility Pie, where we all began to think about actually an event that happened and who actually was responsible, taking healthy responsibility for ourselves and healthy responsibility uh, is placed with others. And then we began to look at life rules, and you'll remember the um, Disco Dave analogy, who, who danced and then made a new appraisal and then went on to um, change his neurotransmission by thinking new ideas and then he went back to a place where he actually began to enjoy dancing again quite quickly. Did anyone try a new appraisal or anyone try making any new appraisals this week? A few people? Nigel? Yeah, 
Yeah? Did you find it helpful? Yes. You did? That's good. Thank you. Thanks. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah. Ali, did you? Okay. So it gave you confidence to be a bit more directive, so you weren't kind of sitting back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Good, okay, that's great. That's really, that really encourages me, thanks for sharing that, because you know, that's, that's part of what we're doing here, but by actually um, being confident to think, actually, it's probably not to do with me, that actually enables us to live quite free. And then we start thinking, actually, I've had quite a good day at work, because no one's off with me, uh, and actually I haven't got to, like, carefully navigate these kind of cautious relationships. So thanks for, thanks for sharing. Um, I want to start off this week just by introducing a, bit of, uh, a little bit of kind of theory. And, and this is relatively radical and quite new theory, but I think it's really, really helpful. Um, the proponents are um, Powell, Hoffman, Cooper and Marvin. I just need to say that because it's their stuff, not mine, and they aren't uh, in the kind of public realm in the same way that Freud and Jung et al. are. And, and this is the idea of the circle of security it's very, very expensive to do this piece of work, so I'm slightly, uh, I'm slightly stealing, uh, but not, not badly, you know, all appropriately. This is on the web, so it's, uh, it's out there in the public domain. The idea of the circle of security is that there are um, two hands, and out of the hands extend this circle. And um, what, what, what do you think about uh, is, is just, just two hands held, one held over the other. And the top hand is called the secure base. And the bottom hand is called the safe haven. Now, we talked, we've talked a little bit about attachment theory and about how attaching with our parents has uh, enabled us to live quite freely. And uh, we don't, we're not going to spend an awful lot of time on attachment theory in this course because it's quite complicated. And for you guys, it will seem quite convoluted because it was a long time ago. But, but this is really helpful stuff. And it's so simple. And it's also so biblical. If you're a Christian here, you'll find this help, a helpful idea. The, the, the idea is that, that a child that is well attached is in the secure base. Uh, and they travel away from the secure base on this top line, which is all about adventure and exploration. And, and they travel away from the secure base until they reach this end of the apex here. And this basically is where their emotional cup begins to empty out. So they started with a full emotional cup from the secure base. But when, they, when they've arrived at this apex, they flip from the adventuring and exploring aspect of their journey, and then they find themselves heading down uh, into uh, this protective uh, part of their journey. And this protective part of their journey takes them back to the safe haven. And, and this, this, whole, this whole aspect of the apex here is about protection. 
and making sense of feeling. Now, this seems quite technical to you guys at the moment, but it's actually incredibly simple. So let's, for the Christians here present, I'm going to use a, a parable, which everyone hopefully will know, uh, even if you don't attend the church, as a parable of the lost son. So, the lost son starts off unlost. He's at home and he's with a loving father. And the story in the Bible says that he knew that he was loved. His, his father was with him. They had a farm together. It was a very secure base. One day the son says to the father, Father, I'd, I'd like my inheritance now because I want to go on a big adventure. He's obviously coming from a secure base because the father doesn't, uh, doesn't go mad and shoot him. Uh, instead, he sells part of his farm, no doubt, or collects the money of the value of part of the farm, gives, him to, gives it to the son, and then lets him go. And during this time, he's on this side of the cycle. He's adventuring and exploring. Now, throughout the story, he's adventuring and exploring in a foreign land, and we know that he got up to all sorts of mischief in that foreign land, you know, spending his money unwisely on women and drink and gambling and all sorts of other things. But actually, then he arrives here at the apex of the circle, which is when he arrives at the pigsty. And it says, he, he, he sat down in the pigsty and he was feeding the pigs, and it said he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Now, at that point, he comes to a point of revelation, which is actually that, that he, he feels uh, unprotected and he feels vulnerable. And he remembers that there was a secure base that he left. And he realises that what he now needs is a safe haven to return to, but he's not initially sure that it's actually safe. So he thinks up a story in his mind, and what he's going to say to his father is, I've, I've sinned against God and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but I'd like to be one of your hired servants. Because even they live better than I do. So, nervously, he travels from the pigsty back to the farm that he'd left. And when he arrives at the farm, he finds it's not actually just a secure base, but it's actually a safe haven. Because the father, rather than saying, oh yeah, of course, you're going to be one of my hired hands, or even coming out with any kind of voice of rebuke or challenge, embraces the son, puts a cloak around his shoulders, new sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger and says, kill the fatted calf, let's have a party. And the son is welcomed in, not as a hired hand, but as a son again. Now, that is the circle of security. That's a biblical model. That's, that was Jesus who told that story. And, and, and what um, Cooper and Hoffman et al. are arguing is that, is that all childhood development works on this basis. That actually, as parents, our key responsibility, if we have children, is to create a, both a safe base where children can adventure away and a secure haven where children can return. Now, let me put this in layman's terms. I'm at the playground in West Harrow Park with my daughter, Skye. When I arrive at the park, she's quite nervous and she stands next to me looking around at all the big children and thinking, what am I going to do? Am I actually going to go and play? Then she realises that I'm there for her and that I'm actually a secure base. And the drawer of the slides is more, more exciting than the drawer of standing next to me. So she goes on an adventure and runs away, to me, away, away from me to the big swings. She gets the big swings and she's starting to have fun, but then bigger children arrive and she starts feeling nervous, and her emotional cup starts to empty out. 
And when that has got to a certain level, she starts looking around the playground to see if I'm still there. And then when she sees me, she runs back through the playground, all the way back to me, where I welcome her and say, are you all right? Are you having a good time? And she says, you're not going anywhere, are you? And I say, no, I'm watching you and I'm staying here. And then she stays there for a couple of minutes until she gets a little bit bored and her emotional cup is refilled. And then she thinks, oh, this is a secure base. Now I'm going to run away again. And now this time I'm going to go to the roundabout. And I'm going to adventure through this circle until I feel nervous again. Then I'm going to run home and I'm going to receive this safe haven. Now, that is, I think, a very helpful model, if you like, for attached parenting. But, but, but Hoffman and Cooper have argued that, that whilst this is, if you like, a perfect model, that actually many of us have experienced models which have been quite dysfunctional. So if this is the blueprint, if you like, for secure attachment, actually some of us will have experienced uh, the, uh, a secure base and we've adventured away from, but actually rather than coming back through uh, the safe haven, we found ourselves in a spiral over here because actually we felt the fear of humiliation at the hands of the safe haven. Actually, that we can't really run back because we feel like we're a failure. Yeah? Uh, some of us may have found that actually rather than uh, coming back to a safe haven, uh, we've had a st- sort of a stiff upper lip English, um, you know, unemotional invitation. So actually we've, we've realised that we need to be self-sufficient, if you like, in this cycle. So rather than going round, it's kind of stopped or it's become disordered. And, you know, I would say that to a level we've all experienced some sort of pattern within the circle of security which hasn't been that secure. Um, and, and that's okay. And or, I'm a parent and I realise I do it wrong all the time. If you're a parent, just feel relaxed because this is totally normative. Therapists wouldn't be employed if parents had done a brilliant job in every case. No one has. You know, we're all, we're all struggling with that reality of trying to work this stuff out. But... To help you now, is it possible to be restored, if you like, to the circle of security, to find actually some renewal in this experience of your life? I would say that because of safety behaviours that we're employing today, uh, we're probably getting lost in a spiral here or there. And actually, as a Christian, again, I'd say that, that part of the reason I am a Christian is that I believe that God, as Father can actually restore a cycle of the circle of security and make me both an adventurer, feeling like actually I can go out and do stuff, but also being my safe haven. So often I begin my day in prayer at the, at the secure base, saying, God, you know, today I want to go out and have an adventure for you. And actually at wobbly points during my day, I find myself running also in prayer into the safe haven and going, God, you know, help me organise my feelings, you know, give me confidence. I need, to, I need to get my strength back. And then going out again uh, into a place of adventure. So, I mean, of course, this is a kind of psychological course. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not wanting to like hijack this for a spiritual end, but I'd say that is a spiritual benefit um, that I think we could be aware of. Alongside that, I would say that disempowering um, the circles of dysfunction in our present are what tonight's really all about, okay? So I would, I would argue that if this course that we're on, if this series of lectures is about reclaiming freedom, it's about saying, what, what am I doing in this 
journey of adventure from secure base to safe haven, which isn't really connecting. In my day, where am I trying to make the circle safe for me? If you remember, when we went back to, uh, I think, two weeks ago, when I was talking about Anna Freud's work on interventional anxiety, and we were saying, actually, how, how we deal with anxiety leads us to act in the present in maladaptive ways, which actually hijack our opportunity to do life well. And, and if, if, if confidence and security mean that we travel the full course of the circle of security, then the safety behaviours that we employ mean that we kind of get part of the way round, but we don't get the whole way round. This is really, really important, guys, and I know this is a little... I'm using quite a lot of hyperbole to try and help you to understand this. There is nothing wrong with this circle. There is nothing wrong with having your emotional tank slightly empty. There is nothing wrong about feelings of needing protection and security. It's a massive error to think that there is something wrong with the feelings on this side of the scale. Do you remember when we did the yellow and the purple feelings in the, in the emotional circle, the circle of complete emotion? They were all good. They were all positive. They were all appropriate. And all of these emotions are useful. Now, the person who's been taught that actually seeking protection is childish finds themselves hardlining their adventure and constantly escaping from relationship. Yeah? So actually what they do is they don't go into relationship because actually they've been told that demonstrating any emotional weakness is unacceptable. And so they just travel away from relationship all the time. So remember when we talked about rules last week, they're using the rule of relationships are unsafe and actually to live well, I need to live hard and fast. They're missing out. Yeah? So that is, that is a, a kind of a classic safety behaviour used at the expense of this part of the circle. And if we've had trouble at this end, particularly if the base hasn't been safe, if the, if the haven hasn't been a safe haven, that will have larger ramifications for how we feel now. So if you come from an abusive family background, if there were a huge amount of moods or if there was lots of aggression in your, in your childhood house, because of the lack of safety that you experience then, that will then be, if you like, projected upon current relationships now. So that could mean that you're responding to potentially loving and safe partners in defensive ways because actually you've learnt that this circle isn't that safe. Now what happens when people do that sort of thing is that if they make a mistake on the circle, if they, if they, if they say they... You know, they, they, went to the, they went to the petrol station and they put diesel into their car rather than petrol. Now, they come home and they've got it fixed, but they don't say that they've got it fixed because they're terrified that actually making the mistake will end in some sort of negative outcome, yeah? That they might be excluded or they might be punished emotionally by their partner or by their parent and so they keep their secrets and what actually happens is they don't fully arrive at the safe haven because they don't actually believe that it's safe yeah so this is a really helpful tool I think in terms of you all thinking day to day am I am I traveling from a secure base and am I returning to a safe haven and 
And, and this is something that we can apply to many, many contexts. You can apply this to your working context. Is my working environment a secure base? And are those people who are giving me appraisals a safe haven? Is there, is there a way of, can I help my working environment to demonstrate this more? In your family, some of you are laughing because you're thinking, this is ridiculous, I'm, I'm, I'm expected to do all this stuff, but there's nothing, there are no hands to catch me. In your families, it doesn't matter whether you're parenting alone or if you're parenting as a couple, how can your environment demonstrate safety uh, here, a safe haven to welcome, but can it also help being a secure base to adventure. You see, part of the problem is, if we don't actually in- allow our children to do this, they're not going to grow and they're not going to want to come back here. You know, if we're not actually empowering our children out of the secure base, we're overwhelming them. And actually, this is insecure. This says, if you leave me, it's going to hurt too much. And so you can't. So then we smother our children and we stop them from adventuring. Yeah, and so that actually turns them against us. It becomes an insecure base. So, so we can think about this in, in, in our marital relationships with a partner. You know, is your relationship, does your relationship look like this? Is it releasing? There's some really interesting adverts on television at the moment saying, you know, with, they're technically about abuse, but it's really interesting hearing some of the testimonies of people saying, actually, you know, my boyfriend started checking my phone all the time and he tells me what time I can come back. And he, and he doesn't let me hang out with my friends anymore. I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. Does that happen? And does that happen in our relationships? If it does, it's not a great thing. We need to challenge it. Because actually, relationships should be about releasing one another to adventure. It doesn't mean sending your partner off to Africa or Malaysia on, honey, on a holiday on their own. It's about releasing them to adventure, whatever that looks like, and actually welcoming them back to a place of protection and safety. So I, I like this model because I think if we're talking about living day to day, we can ask those two questions. And I just encourage you, you know, just to hold up your hands. I, I sometimes do this uh, myself, just as a just as a kind of reminder. How is it? You know, sometimes you know we we say we use, I do a lot of gesticulating, don't I? But sometimes I, li- I like that idea. How is it? Is it a secure base and a safe haven? And actually, I ask myself this question with my team. I ask myself, as a leader and as a manager, I ask myself, am I creating a safe base for adventure? And am I welcoming them home and organising their feelings and offering them protection? And um, it's, a, it's a helpful one. And I've realised that sometimes I've been, uh, I haven't been a secure base because I haven't been releasing people to their adventures. I've been releasing them into my adventures. And actually, they need to be released to their own adventures. So one of the things I do now as a manager is actually try and make sure that every person has a project. They don't, they, some of them here, it's a bit embarrassing because they don't know I do this, but they'll suddenly work it out. <laughs> and they know that they know implicitly that I do this. So I release them to a project to travel away from an adventure, but then I affirm and welcome them home. And sometimes my protection is very active, like when I take on the Colombians and they wave knives at me like they did on uh, Wednesday, on uh, Tuesday. Uh, so so there's some, sometimes there's, there's active protection and sometimes there is implicit protection. But, but, but what's important is that those two things are real. And, it, you know, it, it can be helpful, can't it? Just let it be a, a clue to you. Put your hands together and say, in your working environment, OK, what's going on here? Is this a secure base? How can I talk to my manager and say, is this a, is this a secure base for me to adventure away from? Or is actually this is, 
this feels quite suffocating to me. I don't feel like I'm able to kind of get over the, get over the hump with this one. And I, or actually, wow, this um, appraisal's interesting. You know, this isn't really affirming, is it? Like I thought um, I should be welcomed back from the material journey I've been on and I'm waiting for you to sort of affirm me and, and help me, not berate me for not meeting some target that you plucked out of the air, you know, nine months ago. It's a helpful one. Let's, let's kind of help people into the circle. Before we move away from this, would anyone like to comment or is any, any kind of questions about this idea, just as a kind of principle idea? Yeah, Anu. Yeah, and it, you, 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 we, we did, you know, last week was all about the past and how it influences the future. I know you, you weren't here, so that would be a really good one for you to hear. I will be, <laughs> I will be, I will be, I will be dealing with that again today, you know, as in, in more detail over the, over the next hour. So, so to, to kind of hold on to that, but I definitely think you should go back and have a, have a look. As I say, I, I, like psychology can help diagnose problems, but it can't help to remedy them, remedy them really. Um, and, and, and yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, a really really helpful question. I, and, and, and and the answer to that is that we we all, whether we're the parent or the child, have our circle of security, and you know. Technically, we would say that we, you know, we were all dealing with our inner child. Remember when I did the initial breakdown of the self, that the kind of Jungian outlook is that we have an inner child that needs nurture, that is kind of locked inside. And, and as we interact, particularly, like you say, with our own children, if we've got children, we can become nervous and actually our, our safe haven can not feel so safe anymore. We can be unsure. I mean, what, what, what the danger of this is obviously that it, it proposes a huge amount of responsibility for us, you know, that we, we're carrying this great burden, thinking, oh my goodness, is everyone, you know, who's spending time with me feeling released from my secure base and welcomed into my safe haven? And that for me as a Christian is why I think the model only really works if you look at it in the divine, you know, is that God can be this perfect parent that our parents and us can't be, you know, that... Um, but, but we can aspire to it. I, th- I think bringing in the anxiety idea, actually, do I feel safe in my releasing and in my receiving, helps us also to identify where our past is now influencing our present. And as we have been parented in style, if you remember, as we said last week, by a very, very anxious mother. And I remember... Um, my father was in hospital, he was terribly ill, I mean, he nearly died in about 1985, and uh, he, we were packed off to my grandparents in Devon, and my grandmother was a ter- of a terribly nervous disposition, and I love fishing, and you guys all know that who come here, 
And um, so we were in Devon, and we were there for probably about two months. I mean, it was like the whole summer holidays, and every day there was a phone call about whether my dad was alive or not. So my, my grandmother's nerves were sort of jangling, I like to say the very least. Uh, and I remember, um, you know, being... I'd have, I used to fish off this pier, but they had, I had to wear a life jacket, and then I had to be tied on to a post on the pier. So I literally had to sort of sit with my back to this post in a life jacket and then was tied onto the post in order that I could then kind of jangle my line in the water. You know, and this, this went on for weeks. And then um, that, that kind of... That, that, that actually affected me profoundly. The fact that I remember it now, I was probably only, I can't remember how old, um, you know, 10 or, or less, 9, um, 9 years old. I remember it so profoundly, being tied on and kind of being suffocated. And this idea that actually, you know, that parenting experience, or that was a grandparenting experience, you know, that, that heightens then our fear of, oh my goodness, my child is near water. You know, my child, I, I, I want to take my son fishing. And I was thinking about taking him on a boat this Easter. And actually that, that memory came back to me. And I almost had pictures of him walking off the boat into the water. And, and, and it's amazing how that kind of, that imprinting experience takes place in us. And we have to actively engage with that. The key thing that I said last week, Annie, for your sake, is this idea of, again, parenting out of, the, uh, out of our sort of, our latent norms, about saying this is normal, or this doesn't have any roots, or this is just sensible, is, is the kind of neutral, the kind of normative, the kind of I'm objective idea. And actually what we're trying to do here is say, I'm less objective and free than I thought I was. All of the influences of my past are activating my present, but that doesn't mean I have to capitulate to them. And one of the keys about changing this cycle is about including some of those influences and thinking, isn't it interesting that my dad had this mannerism for this particular way of working emotionally? And I, I now see that demonstrated in me. I mean, people always say things like, I'm becoming my mum, or I'm, I, I'm just becoming my dad. Like, that's so weird. And, and, and we find ourselves, if you've got children, saying things to your children and then thinking, hold on, I've heard that before somewhere. That's what my dad said to me, or that's what my mum said to me. And, and actually coming, you know, beginning to break the cycles of the past in the present is about bringing about the sense of real awareness and saying, is that a value statement that I'm going to take for red, or is that a rule that I've received and now that I'm passing on? So familial uh, failure, this is you know, really interesting when governmentally and something that's, you know, that's been subject to many, many studies. Why is it that generation after generation after generation after generation of certain families find themselves replicating exactly the same behaviours? So why is criminality, for example, evident within four or five generations of particular families, when ed university education is evident within four or five generations of other families? And that, why is it so hard for very, very bright children from certain schools not to get to university and to get out of the cycle of poverty Whereas very, very well, averagely bright children from other schools find their way into university and straight into the money market, you know, overnight. So why is that the case? Well, the reason is not because actually there is a lack of schooling or there's lack of latent, um, you know, uh, mental ability. 
but actually that the belief system that's been received from parents through generations has been held as rule, not as flexible. And that's why we need to, we need to recognize that actually we're on a track, but the track isn't all of our own making. And we have to look down at the rails and go, hold on a minute, I'm on a track that I'm not sure I want to be on. And, and then start looking at behaviours or making new appraisals about the choices that we're making and saying, actually, this feels a bit uncomfortable, but I want to try something new. So we're going to talk a bit about emotional uh, experiments. Yeah, please. Sometimes when you're acting as that pair of hands um, and someone is, you're managing someone, you're parent to someone and something has gone wrong in that circle and you need to give critical feedback, how do you do that in a safe way? Well, well, in answer to the first question, is it, is it positive or can it be positive? It is positive, okay? All, all, all good... Um, Psychological theory is born out of good attachment. So, we, we, you know, the idea is that you that you, you breastfeed m with mother, and mother is an entity outside of yourself. And as you attach to mother in this very physical way, or you bottle feed, it's totally fine to be connected or be prejudicial. Uh, but but as you, uh, the idea is as you breastfeed with mother, and you connect and you attach with mother, you internalize mother. And actually then, as mother then takes you off to school or to nursery, you, you don't lose mother, you carry mother within you. Yeah? So actually we go from being attached to the entity of mother to actually internalising mother and taking her on a journey with us. And, and, and you know, that's why all of the kind of parental idea about, you know, ultimately if you've been in therapy, it's all about mother. There's <laughs> the idea about have, what is the model that you've absorbed yeah? What, what have you absorbed and what is that model, what is that shape like uh, within you? Um, Thackeray is it, who, who, it's a very flippant kind of quote, but something like, um, God, can't be God, God can't be everywhere, so he created mothers. You know, the sort of idea that you know, there's a mother out there, of course God can be everywhere, but you know, the idea is that like, you know, there's this sort of, there's this archetype within us, this mother that will show us the way. So, Good attachment is whether it's, it doesn't matter whether it's mother or father, but good attachment is, is this sort of this cycle of actually adventure and 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 welcome, adventure and compassion. And if you think about all of life's adventures and all of life's positives, they're often rooted in those two things, aren't they? That they're exciting and they're relationally ordering. You know, the, the best experiences aren't kind of going on an adventure and getting completely lost, never seeing anyone ever again. But if you read any of the famous five books, you'll know that going on a great adventure is kind of scary, and you find yourself on Kirin Island or somewhere else, <laughs> and you're dealing with some smugglers or something, and you, you find a pot of gold, but ultimately you always end up back at the vicarage for tea with your family or in Kirin Cottage having kind of toasted crumpets and hot chocolate. You know, ultimately, it starts as an adventure, but it always ends up back in the sitting room, you know, telling stories. And, and sharing, you know, warm times around the campfire. Uh, yeah, Nigel. What strikes me then is that this model is very good for a parent and for a manager, but if you're someone 
Yeah, so, so this, is, this, is, this is a model of diagnostic. This isn't to help us. This, is to, you know, this isn't to heal us. This is to show us maybe where we've got lost on the path and actually where we need now to say, I, I can, I mean, you know, guys, this is an introduction to emotional health. And, and it would, it would as, I've, as I said right at the beginning, I'm sorry, I turned the heating back on again, it's a bit cold. Um, as I said right at the beginning, you know, this could be a very, very helpful prompter for you to get further help, yeah? And, and it could well be an important kind of time for you to think, actually, I, would, I have had a very, very disordered base to return to, or haven to return to, and therefore I'd like to do some deeper work you know, with a counsellor or therapist to actually look at that stuff. So I would just suggest that here to say, you know, not everyone needs counselling or therapy. Not everyone, not everyone does. Um, and, and actually for most of you here, this is going to be healthy stuff that's all that you need. But for some of you here, it might be that actually this, this idea does bring up significant challenges and, and fears. And as a result, you want, to, you want to take it a little bit further. How can you... What I'd say to you in about your, just your final question was actually, what if someone's messed up on this circle? You know, it's, the circle of security is, is completely without um, break, yeah? That, 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 that effectively, this is about unconditional love. Because if you, when you have children, you'll find out that babies, they, they poo their pants all the time, yeah? And that is a mistake in adulthood, but it's not a mistake in childhood. And so the secure base and the safe haven absorb that reality. You know, if you like, it's a category change. It doesn't matter where the mess is. In the story of the um, lost son, the father doesn't actually make mention of the disasters that he had spending all of that money on prostitutes and gambling. He didn't even say anything. He didn't say anything about it in the whole story. You know, people think Christians are judgmental. Jesus didn't say, didn't mention judgment in the whole story of the parable of, of, of the lost son. He just mentions the welcome. That's not to say that discipline and holiness aren't important to Christians. They are. But, but underpinning the whole cycle was this idea that actually the father loves the son, whatever he's done. And therefore, as a manager, for example, obviously this is a different sort of love, but but, but you, can mat, you can demonstrate implicitly that you're a safe person whilst also giving strong feedback. You know, and the, the best managers that you will have ever encountered will be the ones who genuinely challenge and get the best out of their employees and make it clear what's gone wrong. But they also very, very strongly affirm and welcome. And actually they give you the sense that, I don't, you know, have you ever thought of that person who, who can criticise you I use that word lightly because actually I don't really like the word criticise, but can challenge you helpfully, but you don't, you don't find that a problem at all. Actually, you're saying, bring it on. You know, if, you've, if you've got any feedback from me, I'd love it. Whereas other people for whom you feel like they're point scoring against you. So they give you a little bit of critical feedback and you're like, oh, here we go. You know, so, so this is like, this is like a, a kind of a, a, a meta-narrative. It's like something that underpins the whole, the whole of our experience. And... Yeah, something we should aspire to. But we're going to come on to how do we then deal with some of the things that interrupt our present journey that maybe come through this. I'm going to give you a five-minute break, though, first, so you can recaffeinate and we can just kind of clear our heads because there's been quite a lot in that, in that first section for you. So let's take a five-minute break 
and we'll start again just after half past, okay? Okay, let's, um, let's carry on. Hope you're finding this. <laughs> remember as well, you don't have to remember everything. I've recorded everything. And, um, and so you'll be able to go back over the material at a later date. So you'll get a package um, just for you guys uh, of material. So you can go back over the four talks and um, you can kind of re-engage with any of the material that I've... Yeah, I'll put it in the website, but it'll be accessed just for you guys because I don't want to put it out there as a public resource at this stage, okay? But you'll be able to access it uh, as a group. Now, just moving on into... Um, in, into the sort of next phase of what this means. A guy called Arnold Buss, he, um, he suggests that, um, that our, our sort of, our, our, our characters or our identities have, have two, two types, that we have a personal identity and that we have a social identity. So he's arguing that our identities are kind of divided into, into, into these two areas. And the personal identity is organised by um, uh, thoughts, uh, dreams, beliefs, and uh, sort of um, uh, and, and the sort of emotional aspects of ourselves, feelings, of uh, feelings, emotions. So he's saying that our our personal identities are, are shaped or demonstrated through those different areas, but our social identity identities are demonstrated really through much more uh, material things. He calls them appearance, style, and um, what's the third one? Personality. Now, obviously, this is quite a divided idea, but I think it's quite a helpful one that, that we've got We've got a social identity, appearance, style, and personality, and then we've got a personal identity, which is our thoughts, dreams, beliefs, and feelings. And, and a, lot of, a, lot of, um, a lot of this uh, you know, aids us, really, when we think about ourselves and the disconnect between our, our social identity and our personal identity. And, and this disconnect can be propagated by problems in the circle of security. If, if we have a deep personal uh, identity, <clears throat> which is rooted in kind of anxiety and fear and unsafe experiences, uh, we can create a social identity which looks like the polar opposite. Remember, we talked about reaction formation uh, last week. That actually we can create a social identity which is deeply confident and in control. We can appear completely impervious to anything that life throws at us, but actually inside, we're struggling deeply with our experiences. We're trying to make the life, we're trying to make our world safe uh, in, in the personal, but we're in the social expressing a kind of a great hardened persona to try and defend our territory. And um, there are three attached styles, if you like. We talked just about an attachment theory of which the circle of security is one. And Buss and others argue that the three styles or the three attached styles are uh, secure, anxious, and avoidant. 
secure, anxious, and avoidant. So basically, when the circle of security goes wrong, <coughs> when we haven't actually got a secure attachment, um, we can grow up to have one of two other styles, one of two attachment styles which influence our character. Uh, and they're obviously the anxious one, constantly trying to make the world safe, and the avoidant one, who's basically trying to get away from the challenges of life and the perceptions of other people. And I, I, I would say that these things aren't really hard-nosed. Of course, some people are more secure than others, but we tend to have a leaning towards either being anxious or avoidant if we're struggling. I'd also say that in different seasons in our life and in different relationships in our life, we might find ourselves moving out of security into, anxious or into anxiety or into avoidant. And I've done a lot of work with obviously people who've gone through difficult relationship breakdown and have at one point been very secure individuals and suddenly found that the bottom's fallen out of their world and they're either, they're either deeply anxious or they're becoming quite avoidant. A lot of dysfunction, if you like, a lot of clinical issues are rooted in, in the magnification of these sort of problems. Obviously, anxiety disorders envelop us when the world is really increasingly feeling unsafe and we're unable to respond to the world with any confidence. And depressive disorders are often kind of rooted around our desire to avoid what, what's either challenging us externally or internally. And many of the depressed people we work with say, I just want to lie in bed and put the duvet over my head and just not appear to the world today. Obviously, we have to be careful about making generalisations because all of these disorders are broad and the spectrums and the causes behind them are also broad. But if we're thinking in, in kind of outline terms, we can find ourselves either being secure and confident or anxious or avoidant. And, and us and others would say that these are a hardwired propensities that come out of our, ch our childhood. Again, as a Christian leader, I would I, I kind of like to challenge the idea that we cannot change. I believe in a gospel that says we can change and I have changed and I know others who are also have changed and are changing. So I don't think there's a sort of finality to this stuff. And I do believe, as I said before, that, I, I, that God as father um, and as mother in some ways, which is also a biblical idea, can, can help to restore broken attachments from our past. So how does, how does this help us? Well, we need to think carefully about the disconnect between our personal and our social identities. And I, I want to kind of encourage you to think about that idea of an integrated person and um, to start asking yourself, how integrated is my external world and my internal world? How, how together are those two things? The more together that they are, uh, the better we are. And, and I guess the healthier we are. And I want to just, I've got a few little diagrams uh, here. Uh, Jung argues that, um, that you know, we, have, we have what's called the self and the shadow. That's that little circle there, the self and the shadow. And that those two parts kind of coexist, the self and the shadow. And the container around the self and the shadow is the superego. I think I mentioned some of this stuff to you before. And, 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 and if we have a great divide, I think, between the personal and the social, in a way we can exacerbate that out there. Do you know people who are the life and the soul of the party and they go home, they completely collapse, they're completely different people. Maybe that's you. Uh, maybe your public persona is very powerful and your private persona is very, very broken. A lot of people who do my sort of job in public speaking and leading have this in, in spades. 
So they have a very, very powerful public persona, and then their personal, their private world is very, very disordered. One of the best books I've read on that is actually by a guy called Gordon MacDonald. It's called Ordering Your Private World. It was a bit of a classic in the 1970s. Ironically, then, Gordon MacDonald himself had a, quite a pronounced affair and ended up in a very disordered, having a very, very disordered private world, having written the bestseller on Ordering Your Private World. But it goes to show, it goes to remind us that, that the self and the shadow need to be understood together. We have to try and find a greater level of integration uh, in ourselves. And part of the journey of living in the present is about saying, what is it that's disempowering me? And how can I begin to live a little bit more free and be a little bit more integrated than I currently am? And, and, and that really begins by being authentic with ourselves. That begins by saying, actually, I'm replicating patterns from the past. I can see in my life history that there are certain things that have led me to behave in this way. And now I'm taking active steps to engage in emotional experiments which could help me to live more freely. So who's afraid of spiders? Any arachnophobes here? Yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you, Mike. Now, um, if, if we took an arachnophobe, and that's someone who's, who's afraid of spiders. You remember the arachnophobia, that great film that, that terrified a nation overnight. Um, if we take an arachnophobe, what is their primary purpose in dealing with their phobia? What's their, what, what's, their, what's their modus operandi? What's their rule, if you like? What do you think their rule is, an arachnophobe? What would their life rule be relative to spiders? Don't go near spiders. Okay, so which one of these three are they? Avoidant, that's right. Okay, so in the arena of spiders, they're avoidant. So their behavior has become avoidant. Now, you could say that if you go back to the circle of security, you might say that something within the circle of security, some sense of threat or maybe a passed-on sense of the danger of spiders. Some people would say a kind of almost a, a, a historic experience of man's wrestling with nature has become very apparent to them, and they become avoidant. So if they were untreated in their arachnophobia, how, how would their experience of, of, of that life rule affect them long-term? Any thoughts? Sorry? It, they, it, absolutely. It would reinforce that it's a good rule. That's brilliant. Thank you. So if you're afraid of spiders, it is a good rule because everywhere you go, you check that there aren't any spiders. And actually, as long as you check that there aren't any spiders, or as long as spiders are removed from the area in which you're in, you can live peacefully. That's true. So as long as you check that everything's okay, you can continue to be avoidant and actually you remain unchanged. So actually, you'll never encounter spiders in your lifetime, so you can live avoidant. Now, when it comes to spiders, that's fine, because actually spiders aren't particularly useful to us. But, but imagine that actually it was social relationships which were your problem. Actually having interpersonal relationships with other people, because actually somewhere in the circle of security, something became very unsafe for you. How would that work? So what you would do then would be you would be living avoidant and actually avoiding people. And that would have 
a, a far greater negative effect on your life than it would being arachnophobic. Interestingly, if we tried an, an, an experiment relating to the anxiety cycle, and we took Mike, or, you know, we took Hazel, we, 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 we got on this, they won't like this idea, but if we got a big tarantula, I haven't got one, so just feel relaxed. If I took a big tarantula out of a box and I placed it on Mike's shoulder, in the anxiety spiral, he would immediately begin to spike. There would be a huge amount of adrenaline in his system. He would begin to hyperventilate. His blood flow would increase. It would retract from his outer limbs, from his fingers, from his toes, and it would all go towards his heart. He would start feeling quite dizzy and quite panicky, and he might, you know, he might, uh, he might start feeling like he's in the early stage of a panic attack. If we left that spider there and just stopped Mike from brushing it off or from running away, after 15 minutes, he would spike through the anxiety cycle and actually he would start feeling tired, um, slightly listless, maybe a bit headachy. After 20 minutes, he would start feeling pretty normal. And after half an hour, he would start feeling quite bored. And after 45 minutes, he would be asking me if we could do something else, please. Okay? So... An experiment like that shows us that whilst we can be, whilst we're avoidant, that actually going through the experiment of what we call exposure and response prevention, we can begin to learn something new, which is that our fear of spiders actually doesn't really have a deep base and it can be challenged. Now, the difficult thing is it's easy to challenge the fear of spiders or even the fear of heights, but it's very difficult to challenge the fear of people. You know, because people hurt you. And so some, some areas of our avoidance can be easier to overcome. You might not have the inclination to go through that process, and I understand why not. But, but other aspects of our avoidance can be kind of well-rooted. And, and it's in this that people say, I don't, wanna, I don't want to ever go into another relationship before because my last partner was abusive, horrible, I had this terrible experience. People say this about church. I had a terrible experience of church, you know, people were unpleasant to me. I'm never going to go back there ever again. Now, we can become avoidant because of our history. The, the, the point of cognitive behavioural therapy is beginning to say, actually, what can we do now in the present to help break down the walls of our box? How can we actually challenge the rules that we've created for ourselves? So if, if an arachnophobe's rule is, I must never be in the same room as a spider, we take the arachnophobe and put them in the same room as the spider and see what happens. The only person who can make that decision is the person who's the arachnophobe. One of my friends has a kind of... I deal quite a lot with OCD-related kind of challenges, uh, obsessional thinking and the like. One of my friends has, a contamin has contamination fears, which are very, very powerful, uh, to the point that they influence her life you know, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis. And another friend who's a very, very good Harley Street psychotherapist took her out into the tube, which he's also terrified of. And um, they, did, they played sort of Hansel and Gretel on the tube, where the Harley Street psychotherapist would drop polos on the floor, and my other friend had to go and eat the polos in the tube. And they would just travel backwards and forwards and, you know, drop polos. My friend would eat the polos. My therapist would sit there dropping another polo. And, um, and you know... It sounds like hell. It sounds absolutely... I mean, if you're terrified of contamination and you're terrified of the tube, eating polos that have been dropped on the floor in the tube, like for 40 minutes at a time, pretty miserable. But actually, amazingly, it has had a transforming effect. 
And now, my friend, you know, she, she, she wouldn't, she's not a tube lover, but she could totally do the tube. And she certainly hasn't got any issues with food contamination anymore. Because she actually tried something new. And, and I, I've said to you guys, that, you know, if I, if with my anxiety challenges, you know, I would rather leave my house to be burgled with the door unlocked than I would go back and start checking that the door is locked and get stuck there. You know, that actually our feelings can leave us stuck in cycles of anxiety or avoidance. But our feelings should not be able to dictate everything that we do. And the, the process of cognitive behavioural theory is actually saying, let's think something new despite what our feelings are telling us. And, and, and when we're thinking about the past, the past will present and replicate feelings very powerfully. Because actually we attach feelings to memories. So if, for example, a setting has been unsafe, you, you sense that it's unsafe, not kind of cognitively, not logically, but somewhere deep inside you. So actually you associate things with deep fear. And, and that sense of, like, I can't possibly go in there isn't logical, it's not rational, but it's deeply held. So challenging that by saying, actually, what would happen if I did go there? That's the beginning of recovery, that's the beginning of change. I, I think I've talked to you already about, um, about these things that hold us, they're called safety behaviours. Here's a little life jacket, someone dying, diving into the pool. Um, if you wanted to teach someone to swim, it would seem like a good idea to, for them to wear a life jacket, wouldn't it? What would be the, what's the problem about wearing a life jacket when you're learning to swim? You can't really swim, can you? What can you do in a life jacket? Yes, you can float. Thank you, Margaret. You can float in a life jacket. What, what has to happen when you take off the life jacket? What, what is the opposite of swimming? Drowning. Right, okay. The opposite of swimming is drowning. So in order to swim, you have to be able to drown. That's the rule. In order to swim, you have to be able to drown. Now, safety behaviours which are more strongly attached, well, they're, they're, are, they're avoidant and anxious. <laughs> you know, a safety behaviour is avoidance. I don't, I'm not going to go there. People say, I'm never, I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to go to a nightclub because there's too many people there. I'm never going to go into the underground. There's too many people there. I'm never going to go to church. There's too many people there. Or I'm never going to get into a relationship. You know, it's too dangerous. Or anxious. I, I can't possibly go and do that. I can't possibly eat that polo. You know, they're all safety behaviours because we believe somewhere deep inside us that they keep us safe. And it goes back to very often what we've experienced in our childhoods and through the cycle of security that, that, that areas of life have been t we've been told we should either stay away from or they're potentially unsafe for us. So we become avoidant or we become anxious. And, and, and challenging safety behaviours and challenging those rules that we talked about last week is about saying, I can do something new and I can test out whether or not these rules are actually true. I can try them out and I can do something different. The, the difficulty with the human spirit is it, it, it trusts what it knows. Have you noticed that? So it trusts what it knows. Do you work with someone or do you know someone who, who in the office does the same thing? It's just a habit that they do. They, 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 have, they have to use the same pen. 
Or they, they have to, they have to like, they, or, they organise their desk in the same way and it drives everyone else slightly, slightly crazy. Or that they have some sort of habit in the workplace, which is just, is, it's just their thing. You know, I remember watching, I used to watch Ivan Lendl. He was, I always liked the underdog watching tennis. Ivan Lendl was in the finals of Wimbledon like six times. He never won Wimbledon. In fact, I don't think he won a Grand Slam. Maybe he won, maybe he won American once. But Ivan Lendl, he had this terrible habit where he would tap his shoes four times on each side. And, and, and you know, he got so, he was like this bag of nerves. And, and he had this rule, if he would just tap his, his heels with his racket four times before anything happened, he would be all right. You know, he would, he would win. And, and, and you'd see as the tension rose that the tapping became more and more incessant. You know, he did it because it assuaged his anxiety. Could tapping your shoes in any way benefit your tennis? Absolutely not. But if you told Ivan Lendl that, he would totally disagree with you. Yeah? So he would believe that tapping the shoes had some sort of benefit because it made him feel better. And I want to say to you guys that the main reason that we are stuck in the present is because we are in cycles of behavior that make us feel better, but they're actually maladaptive. They're not actually liberating us. And, and the danger is, it's terrifying taking off our life jackets because we might sink. But at the same time, if we don't take off our life jackets, we will never learn to swim. And so the challenge is, you can live as you're living and float, which is better than drowning, but actually, unless you take off the life jacket, you're never going to actually learn to swim. You're just going to float. And you can apply that safety behavior principle to all manner of things. You can apply it to your relationships. You can apply it to your working practices. You can apply it to your spiritual lives here in church. You can apply it to your marriages. You can apply it to your parenting styles. And you, you know, the, the important thing here is to begin to play. You know, when you're a big group, I'm not here to diagnose anything. I'm just here to offer you broad principles to say, what would it look like to really risk? Well, I can tell you, it would be painful. It would be challenging. And, and, and I know, you know, with, with small children now, I can see that, that, that they, they get habits. Children are very good visual aids to adulthood. You know, we are the same, but we just can hide it with very professional and kind of material outlooks. But I can see my children becoming entrenched in behaviours, you know, that, that actually are maladaptive, they're unhelpful. And if you try and change those behaviours, if I try and get my daughter to actually put her school uniform on before she's come downstairs rather than after she's already had her breakfast and you're already like 10 minutes late to go to school, you have a massive kind of screaming fit. I couldn't possibly do that. That would be totally wrong to do that. There's no, there's no logic to that at all. But unless we actually go through the screaming fit then actually the behaviour is just going to become an entrenched pattern of behaviour and we're never actually going to get to a point where we can get dressed ourselves and then come downstairs. Now that's a very simple example for very complex examples in, in adulthood where we find ourselves engaging in patterns of relational and interpersonal behaviour which is just really entrenched. You know, we have to begin to say, hold on, why do I do that? Why am I doing that again? Why is this unsafe? And you can take grand rules, family rules, like it's not safe to talk about our feelings, and you can try an emotional experiment, which is actually, guys, tonight I thought I was going to try something different. 
over dinner, I was actually, I'm going to tell you how I feel. See what happens. They're all going to go, really? This is weird. Dad is saying what he feels, and it's not all good. He's being vulnerable. What are the risks? Well, the children slightly take the mickey, and they're like, oh, oh, it's a big therapy session, Dad. So you get persecuted and you get humiliated. But actually, those feelings aren't so bad because you've started to make gains by actually beginning to talk about how you actually feel. And then they respond by saying the next week, oh, I'm feeling, you know, you said about how you're feeling a bit low. I'm actually feeling a bit like that myself. Something's changed. And the whole principle, mind and soul is based on the principle, if you change something, you will change something. That's why I find it exciting. Because we're here with a group of you, 25 of you tonight, and we, by offering you some of this new information, we are actually changing you. You might come here and think, oh, this is a bit of a boring lecture tonight. But actually, if you've taken on board any of the concepts that I've shared with you tonight, you will actually have already changed your perspective, and therefore you will actually change your behaviour because you've started to change your thinking patterns and so your behaviour will naturally follow as you, as you begin to kind of express you know, what is going on inside of you. How do we escape from the past? We can't. You know, that's the thing. Escapism, escaping from your past, is just being avoidant. Yeah? So when people say, how can I get away from my past? You're going... Well, it's a good example of an avoidant personality. We're not here to escape from our past. We're here to actually see a Christian term, redemption in our past. That's why I love, again, uh, being a Christian, is actually that nothing is wasted and nothing is hidden. That everything is useful and everything can be revealed. And I, I think as a nation, we are the Brits particularly, incredibly avoidant naturally. We might be anxious, but as a, person, as a cultural style, I'd say we're incredibly avoidant. It's, it's amazing. You only have to travel on the Met Line into London to know this is true. If you've got a carriage, and you've got people in the carriage, and you come on board, you will see everyone, and they're on their own bench seat, and they will be dotted down the carriage unless it's rush hour. And no one will be sitting next to anyone if there are any seats that happen to be taken. If you go into the urinals, there could be 30 urinals. If there is one man in one standing by one urinal, the next man will come into the toilet and he will walk down 28 urinals to go for a wee. So he's not standing next to the man who's already using urinal number one. You know, it's fascinating. We are naturally avoidant. You know, we don't want to kind of, we don't want to rub shoulders with one another. Church can be difficult because we know we've got, we're packed and everyone has to sit on a seat next to someone. If you go to some of these old school churches where they've got pews, you know, one person sitting on pew number one, one person sitting right at the back in pew number 17. You know, it's far away from the other person as they can possibly be. That's a demonstration of our desire not to be known and not to be healed. I believe that healing, in the large part, comes through relationship. And it's, it's really interesting how all, um, all active therapy is about relationship more than is about material. So if you think about, if you think about the way that um, mental health, you know, holistic mental health treatments are structured today, you have, obviously, 
pharmacological treatments, which are medical medications, but, but most of the expensive therapies are about relational therapies. They're either group therapies or they're one-to-one -one therapies. They're transactional. They're about being in relationship with another person. And they're about being open and about opening up. And so dealing with the past is very much about bringing the past into light, into the present, and seeing it for what it is. Um, and, and obviously there can be all sorts of reasons why we wouldn't want to bring the past into the present, because we think it contaminates the present. But again, we're just being avoidant. The past doesn't contaminate the present because the past is already with us and we're in the present, so it's already affecting us. I'm writing a new book at the moment on, on neurotic guilt and it's been fascinating going around uh, Christians broadly and talking about, about guilt and how it's affecting them. And it strikes me that there is a huge amount of neurotic guilt leveled within the Christian community who are supposed to feel forgiven. Yet they're feeling weighed down with their badness and they're hiding and they're entrenched in these patterns. And um, I'm just playing around with the acronym GLUE, uh, this idea that that's, it, 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 it's guilt that's been left underexposed. You know, it's, it's guilt that's been left underexamined. It's, it's just stuck. It's sort of, it's there in our past and it's feeding our future, but we're kind of trying to be avoidant in actually dealing with it and facing it down. So, this idea that, that the past is, that we're avoidant people, we're trying to avoid everyone because we're ashamed of ourselves and we're kind of, we're uncomfortable, either we're avoidant of our past or we're anxious about what our pasts mean. And so you end up being stuck. So it's the idea is that glue is guilt left underexposed. It's like, it's just there, it's just stuck. It's just stuff that we carry around, that we try to forget, that we try not to engage with, that we try and repress, suppress or deny, because actually we just feel bad. So we find in our lives we're, we're either we're getting on as quickly as we can because we're trying to be busy to try and avoid what we don't like about ourselves, or we're trying to escape because we're anxious that someone might find us out. You know, you know, they might see who we really are and they might think, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend my time with this person. Life is, life is effectively built around what I think is a divine calling, you know, that, 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 that actually man's greatest desire is that he might be accepted. Man's greatest fear is that he might be rejected. So that's, that's, that is the equation. That's, that, 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 that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're struggling with ultimately. And that's what the circle of security, that's what cognitive behavioural therapy, that's what you know, transactional work is, is dealing with. This idea that actually everyone fundamentally wants to be accepted. And yet we are all terrified that we're going to be rejected. And... You know, this works out in our family lives. This is why we're avoidant. It's because 
we, we're terrified we're going to get rejected. It's why we hide our guilt, because we're terrified we're going to be rejected. It's why we demonstrate huge public persona, because we're terrified that if people saw our personal, our personal identity, they would reject us. You know, it's why, it's why you know, we work very hard on our external appearance, because we're terrified we're going to be rejected. And actually, all we really want is to be accepted. You know, people, you know, people will do an awful lot to be accepted in a group or in a family, or in a relationship. And actually, the relationships that people say are really good. They say things like, I feel, I feel loved just as I am. I feel genuinely accepted. I feel genuinely loved. And there's like, that's like a benchmark for all that is good. So again, it's why I'm a Christian. Because I believe that in a way that God is the only person who can fully accept me as I am, because he's the only one who, can, who truly knows who I am. And he's the only one who, who, who I can guarantee won't reject me, because he's made that his promise over my life. So that affects me because it gives me confidence to know that I'm truly accepted and I'll never be rejected. But if you're not a Christian, that might just seem like a pipe dream to you. Let's have a break for five minutes and then we'll come back to conclude with some concluding ideas and remarks. Okay. It's great that you guys, I think, are... You know, you, 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 this, isn't, this isn't like, you know, it's not all easy. And, and I just think there's some, there's some heavy material that we've dealt with today. And some of it's going to be quite challenging. and It's going to make you feel quite uncomfortable. The reason it's going to make you feel quite uncomfortable is it, it challenges your avoidance or it challenges your anxiety. Okay. Now, the easiest way to do that is to actually have a go at the material or me and sort of say, oh, no, I think it's rubbish. It doesn't, it's not going to work, okay? So, yeah, thanks for demonstrating that. So, so yeah, the, 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 the psychological response is to go, oh, that's rubbish, that's not going to work, and I'm not going to try it. It's absolutely pointless learning this stuff or, or engaging with it if you don't actually put any of it into practice. Completely pointless. And actually, everything will be theoretical as long as you haven't actually done any experiments to try and make it an application. So you guys who tried to make some new appraisals actually had some success because you actually put it into place. You actually tried it out. And actually, even if it fails, then at least you've had a go. But if you just lose, if you leave this as theory, it won't affect your life in any way. Okay, it's just knowledge. There are a lot of therapists and a lot of psychotherapists who are pretty messed up. They're very, very good at giving the material. Really, really poor at actually receiving any of the material. And you know, it, it, it does, just because you know it doesn't mean it, it's going to help you. I, 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 I use this stuff in my own life on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, some of it. And I find it helpful. And if it's helpful to you, then that's a bonus. But, but just recognise that some of it is quite hard. And that about, you know, healing and growth is about, partly about suddenly noticing that you're being quite avoidant about it. You know, we, interesting, when we were running the traditional course, we used to have homework. And it was, it, we, we, we don't really do homework anymore because it's pointless, because people are so avoidant. They literally, they come back and you'd be like, have you, have, did, it, did anyone do the homework? <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely ridiculous. It was a completely nightmare. You know? And then you start getting excuses from like, you know, 40-year-old bankers sort of saying, oh, my, my kids uh, spill their cornflakes on my book. You know, my dog ate it. It was just ridiculous. People are so, you know, people are avoidant. So 
part of healing is knowing yourself and actually going, I'm quite avoidant. I don't really want to do this. But, but feel the fear and do it anyway. That's the key thing. You know, feel, feel the discomfort. We have not been created just to have a whole wellspring of wonderful feelings all the time. If it feels uncomfortable, you're probably doing it right. If you're trying to get over the arachnophobia, if, if you weren't terrified, you, it, you wouldn't be exposed enough. Exposure and response prevention, which is a very helpful anxiety-related tool, is dependent upon you feeling utterly terrified. And if you don't feel terrified enough, the level of exposure is too low, so you won't actually get better. You, know, you have to feel uncomfortable if you're going to continue to grow through this process. I, I want to give you just a couple of tools to go away with this week when you're thinking about how can I actually change my behaviour when all of these forces from my past and these memories and these imprints are acting on my nature right now. They're acting on my will right now. I, I think a couple of things are going to happen. The first thing is you're going to continue to live life forward. So you're going to carry on doing the things that you're doing. The second thing that's going to happen is that, is that part of yourself, the more objective part, potentially the superego part of yourself, is going to start objectifying your behaviour a little bit more. And you're going to start asking this question, why, why am I doing this? And it will come into your mind, like, almost like, ping, why am I doing this? What, what is it? Why am I behaving like this? And this new sense of objectivity is going to come into your heads. Okay? Now, that isn't going to help you if it turns into what we call the inner critic. So if it becomes the voice which is inhabiting the kind of the maternal or the paternal, you are an idiot, why are you doing this? Or you are such a failure, I can't believe that you're doing this. That is completely unhelpful. Okay? So what we're not looking to do is we're not looking to fuel the voice of the inner critic. The inner critic is not helping us at all in growing. What we, are help, what we are seeking is a compassionate and an ob- objectified voice within us that is encouraging and that is seeking to kind of build us up and spur us on. So why am I doing this? I could try doing something different right now. Go on, you can do it. Okay? So challenge, try and grow or nurture a more compassionate inner voice which is encouraging you to both notice what you're doing and to lead you towards doing something fresh, something new. Okay? And I use this traffic light model to help you to then begin to put into practice something new. So when you identify, for example, I'm trying, it's helpful to maybe see sort of concrete examples of this. So you've had a bad day at work, you come home and um, you see a bottle of red wine and you're just thinking, I'm going to drink that bottle of red wine. Now, you've drunk a bottle of red wine when you've come home or half a bottle of red wine when you've come home for the last five years. Because what's happened in your mind is relief and red wine say the same thing to you. So you come in the door, you're just getting out the corkscrew, you're just about to open up the bottle of red wine and this little voice in your head says, why are you doing that? Do you really want a glass of wine right now? And you're thinking... The inner rebel, the id, will be saying, yes, you do. Why shouldn't you deserve it? Carry on. Pull the cork. Okay? And this objective part of yourself is going to say, react. React to what you're doing. Just hold on a minute. Remember. Remember what you've learnt. Remember that actually there could be a new way of coming home on an evening. And then reappraise, which is about making alternatives, offering yourself an alternative. 
saying, actually, I, I don't actually think I feel like a glass of red wine, if I'm really honest. I'm just going to put the bottle back on the sideboard and I'm going to try something new. I'm going to have um, a glass of lemonade. Uh, instead, I'm going to go to the shop and I'm going to, buy, I'm going to have a martini, maybe. That wouldn't be so bad. The, the, the key thing is, the key thing is, it's about behaving differently. It's actually making a concrete change. It, it, it's, it's, it's reacting to the thought, something, I'm doing something out of habit here, and then remembering that actually you can do something new, and then actually doing something new. Yeah? So it's a three-stage process. You react, okay, hold on a minute, I could try something different here. You remember there are opportunities to try something new, and then you reappraise. You put those new things into, into action. You, you actually you make those new thoughts real. You bring them to life. If, for example, in your marriage, if you're married, you, your wife says something to you or your husband says something to you that is quite patronising or annoying. They do this quite regularly, and it's normally about the same thing. You react the same way every time by being hugely defensive. And it begins the whole cycle of a historic argument over and over again. They, they say the thing, you react. Oh, I'm just about to do that horrible defensive thing that I normally do and be really avoidant and go into the study and sit down and be in a mood. I'm going to remember there are new opportunities here for me to try some other style. This style maybe is the style of my father. I'm going to try the style of someone really verbose, like Russell Brandt. I'm going to put on some tight black jeans and stalk around the kitchen laughing manically and see what happens. I'm going to not say anything. I'm going to just embrace my wife and say, darling, I love you. I know I'm an idiot, just to see what she says. And then I'm, 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 I'm putting that into practice. I'm making it happen. I'm making my reappraisals live. Now, and what's really interesting about that is if you take the mind and soul rule seriously, that if you change something, you change something, there's a knock-on change. So you've changed something, and then you've changed something in your partner's reaction to you, which has an effect for all subsequent interactions. Because actually what was a pattern and what was a holding behaviour has suddenly become a one-off behaviour. And actually a one-off behaviour can mean that there are other variables. So we can become less predictable. Who wants to be predictable? Who wants to do the same thing every time? No one. Because growth says, as we mature and grow, we do different things in different ways at different times. And growth means that actually we are not held by the patterns of the past, but we're released to new behaviours in the future. The whole Christian message is actually that we can be transformed, and we are being transformed. The whole nature of Christian discipleship is about the journey of transformation. And, and if this stuff, this stuff, you could argue, is the Christian gospel at work, that actually before we were kind of blind to our old behaviours, our old life, suddenly we see the new, our life is in the light of Christ. We remember what he'd done for us on the cross and how he's called us to live in holiness. And then we reappraise our behaviours and we begin to decide what actually a kind of gospel behaviour might look like. And we start trying to put that into practice. So the red the amber and the green. Go here, but actually go. Don't just think about it. Actually try it out. At the same time, behind this, there could be emotions. There could be anxiety. As you see the stoplight, yeah? There could be un un uh, insecurity. 
as you remember that there are other options. You might not feel confident that there are other options. And, and there could be here, there could, there could be terror. Because you're thinking, actually, I'm going to try something new and I've always done it like this. I've always done it like this. If we're going to break out of our boxes in the present, we've got to take a new, a new sense of liberty and actually say, I've always done it like that, but now I'm going to do it like this. Failure is not a problem because actually there isn't really failure. There's just a new way of doing, okay? If you feel bad, it's totally normative. It's amazing how people will use their feelings as a thermometer of whether or not they've been successful. It's, it's incredible. If you, if, you, if you watch Olympic ice skating, you watch the ice skating, the couple who are ice skating, they are amazing. You see them getting off the ice, they look absolutely miserable. Then the scores come up, and they look absolutely elated. Why is that? Well, it's because actually their feelings after the performance determined that everything that they'd done was wrong because they only remember the faults. Because remember, we're predisposed to believe the negative, that you've all got a terrible disease, not that you've all won a million pounds. The reality, though, is that they've done brilliantly. And the scores show objectively that they've been very, very successful. That is totally normative, and it's normative for you in emotional experiments too. So as you try something new, everything within you will be saying, this is a complete failure, this is a complete disaster, I'm going to be completely humiliated. Because all of your previous predictors have said that if you do that particular behaviour that way, you will be humiliated. It's only until you've actually put it into practice and almost got feedback on it that you realise that that was a lie anyway. You know, the, the, the children who grew up with parents saying, you know, don't speak up, you're an idiot, spend their whole lives in silence. And then they suddenly speak up and someone says, hey, that's really intelligent. And they're still thinking, I'm an idiot. And actually, suddenly they're going, oh, people think I'm actually quite intelligent. Yeah, that's because you actually are. But you never tried. You never spoke up. You know, you had a life rule that said children need to be seen and not heard, especially you. Yeah, Debbie. If, if, if we go back to uh, the idea that there is a, a personality or an identity that is social and an identity that's personal, then yes, it would. But I, want, I would say to you that, that is a good thing. Because what, what we're going to do is going to affect this. That's personality. So suddenly, we're going to behave differently, and people are going to start saying, oh, you've changed. Yeah, I have. I've grown. I've changed. Oh, you're really assertive all of a sudden. What's got over you? I've just decided I want to be more authentically me. Oh, you're suddenly really bossy. You used to be really submissive and do everything that I told you to. Get down off your high horse. Really? Is that what we're going to do? You see, growth is about challenging the social perceptions of ourselves, our social personality, and growing our personal personality. Because actually, this means nothing. You know, if we care what people think of us in the main, of course it's important what our families and friends and loved ones think of us, but, but if we care what society thinks of us, you know, we're really in trouble. Because they aren't going to love us. 
what we need to be doing is caring about this, what is inside. And again, the Christian message is that it's what's in our hearts that matters. It's not what people think of us. It's, what, it's what's brewing inside of us that actually is important. And here, I want to underline dreams. Because it's sad to me that so many wonderful people have not had an opportunity to really dream. Because actually their dreams have been quashed or stolen or suppressed or their life rules have dictated that they could never do this, that or the other. Uh, one of my best friend's parents, um, I, I don't know whether they went through this sort of process or not, but they suddenly, having never gone, I think they went to Bognor Regis on holiday for like 37 years, and then suddenly they changed and they went on a world tour. And like, they must have spent a lot of money, probably saved it over 37 years of going to Bognor Regis. But, um, but they went on a world tour and suddenly they like, had this incredible wanderlust. And they were like, now they go off on all these exotic holidays. And people are like, oh, you've changed. You know, have you become really materialistic? You know, well, you know, suddenly you're traveling the world. What I love about it is that it's like suddenly they've engaged with their dreams. You know, suddenly they're fulfilling their dreams. And, 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 and you know, if you're criticized for interfering with your social public personality, why not? Bring it on. It's probably a good thing. If you're criticised for you know, quashing your dreams, that's a completely different thing. You know, part of this is about li- being liberated from what other people think of us, from what our, our, our social identities are, and actually beginning to say, who, who actually am I and who can I be? Which is an even more exciting question. And remember, social identity is not just the construct of the external voice, it's the construct of the internal one. So we go right back to Jung and Freud and start looking at archetypal voices within the self. So we start talking about the animus and the anima, the male and the female. We start talking about the parent voice, the mother voice, the father voice, the internal voices of our, of our heritage, of our social genre that have said, it is not acceptable for a black woman to be in this position of power over this white man. It's a social voice. It's held held by totalitarian regimes um, which have been broken down. It's not acceptable for you as a wife to go away and leave your husband and child to look after the home. Your mother would never have done that. That is an internal voice. It is not acceptable for you, man to cry, your father never cried, you shall never cry. You know, it's an internal voice. It's a social voice. You know, if we're going to grow and if we're going to dream, the challenge is as much about our internal social narrative as an external one. So can we, can we change? Can we, in the present, can we grow? Can we uh, embrace a new dream, I guess, a new, a new way of being, a new freedom. I think that's an exciting idea. Um, and I guess I, 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 I want to leave that with you. We, we, we're out of time. Next week we're going to talk about our future, and that's kind of a helpful place to end in a way because we are then saying, what am I going to do with what I, with what I know? Are there any... I, I didn't let anyone have time for any questions. Are there any burning questions that anyone wants to ask today or are you feeling confident to muse on what we've been discussing this evening yeah everyone happy great okay last week next week um 
If you could put your chairs away from me on the racks, that would be really helpful. And I look forward to seeing you then. All right? Great.